to Tales from the Teacher's Lounge. This is Lauren Morris, and together we look at teaching the art of improv. This week we bring to you Bill Binder. Bill began performing in Michigan in 1994, where he performed for six years before moving to Phoenix, Arizona. Bill helped to organize the first Phoenix Improv Festival in 2002, spent two years training at I.O. West in Los Angeles, and was one of the founding members of the Torch Theater. Bill is someone I can talk improv with for hours. I mean it, hours upon hours upon hours. He sees improv in a way that I have yet to even grasp. And I just love to be able to pick his brain. He's thoughtful. He's meticulous. He has seen a lot. He has done a lot. And you are going to learn so much from this episode. So once again, thank you so much for listening. And I hope you enjoy Tales from the Teacher's Lounge. Okay, great. So let's start. How long have you been teaching now? Uh, I've been teaching. That's a good question. I did a, I started in a couple times many years ago, but I've been actively teaching since about 2001. And where did you start teaching? Um, aside from those couple, well, let me back up slightly. I, uh, I performed in Michigan for many years and I was just a performer and I was asked to run a couple public workshops, uh, which was very exciting, but I really didn't know what I was doing. And when I moved to Arizona, uh, I was the only one who had in background in long form. So I just decided, like, I guess I will have to start some classes and teach it. And admittedly, I didn't really know what I was doing, but I just really wanted to share it. So I really started practicing teaching in around 2001 in Arizona just to start spreading the word on, on Herald and long form and stuff like that. Was that when Torch was Born, or is that the like predecessor to Torch being born? For those who don't know, you are one of the founders of the Torch Theater in Phoenix. Mm-hmm. No, the history of the Torch in Phoenix, I'll go in as much or a little detail as you want, but it's kind of interesting is that uh, there was just a few independent troops. Like there were, there was a theater over in the next town over, and there was a comedy sports team, but there wasn't theaters at that time, there was just a couple independent troops forming, and we started becoming friends and started realizing that we all kind of had similar philosophies. So in 2002, we did a festival, and it was just a chance, less for the public, it was more for us to just meet each other and perform at the same time and everybody see what everybody else was doing. And so the festival was kind of before any of the, the bigger theaters here kept growing, and... It was five years after that that some of the troops that had been struggling to promote themselves just said, why don't we just create a theater that we can really get behind and put some name recognition in and put some quality in and, and work together to build a theater instead of just acting like all these little independent troops playing the coffee houses. So the torch started in 2007. So during those times, you were still, you had started teaching though. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, yeah. Were you teaching one-off workshops? Were you teaching uh, a curriculum that had, you know, a start and a beginning? What were you teaching? At the very beginning, I was just teaching kind of what long form is and a little bit of what Harold was, because that was more of my background at the time. Uh, just there wasn't enough people or enough time to do more than that. Uh, but a long form troop formed. 
and that's where I met Jose Gonzalez. And we performed for a few years, and eventually we said we should start doing like more structured classes that can really teach people some more of these skills beyond just a quick drop-in type thing. So Jose and I, as Galapagos, started teaching a level one and a level two class back, I don't remember exactly what year, but that was probably around 2004, 2005. And those were kind of the only long form classes in town for a while. And when the torch started, we got together with everybody else. We just took that curriculum and we made a lot of changes to it and grew it and expanded it and brought other people's ideas in. But that was kind of the, the template that we built the current torch curriculum. When you and Jose sat down for those early classes, what's sort of the process you guys were going through in building the curriculum? Are you the type of person who looks at what the end goal is and works backwards? Are you looking week by week? You know, how structured were you guys, how detailed were you guys getting? Less, Less detailed than we are now, but definitely detailed. And I think it's important to... I don't know if I necessarily say I start at the end and work backwards, but I know what the end goal is, and I build up from there. I think there was a set of skills we thought were important for people to know, and then we also thought there was probably an order which made sense for them to build on each other, because I really think that these skills aren't independent of each other for the most part. You know, agreement and character work and everything, they, they relate to each other, so if people have a basis then they can you know go from one skill to the other so we kind of put them in order and made a point each week to talk about the thing we had worked on last week and how it relates so that this felt like a a whole instead of a series of unrelated things and it was really important to see when we would do an exercise and this is so important to me today we would know the purpose of the exercise but i know from classes i take in the past before sometimes you don't really know why you're doing something you know and it's you know, it's good a mental workout, but beyond that, you don't know how to apply that. And I felt that wasn't as helpful as really at the beginning saying, hey, we're going to do this exercise, and here's how it relates to your work, and be a little Socratic about it, you know, afterwards and go, so what What about that made sense? What about that seemed relevant to the work you're doing right now? What parts of it didn't make sense or seemed contradictory to what you're doing right now? And I think that was really important to the process of giving them a voice in, you know, understanding how these skills relate to the work they're doing at the time. Yeah. Uh, I also like to front load my exercises. I don't necessarily want to try to trick someone into doing an exercise. I just, you know, here's the exercise. Here's why we're doing it. Uh, you got, so you and Jose then must have shared a similar philosophy and approach to improv. So how did that shape your philosophy and approach to teaching? Well, uh, that is true, but I just also want to point out that, uh, and I know a lot of younger cities are this place where Phoenix was back then. It's fortunate that we had a similar philosophy, but at the same time, we were also just the only two people interested in doing it. So even if we had very different philosophies, I think we would have said, let's let's figure out where our common ground is, uh, because there's just the two of us and need to work together. Um, but yeah, fortunately, we did have a common philosophy, which I think led into it. And I think a few things. One is that take the craft seriously that wasn't being it's heard all over the place now but I wasn't hearing that as much at least in the parts of the country I was at back then that it was just go for the joke uh, have fun make a fart sound and 
I, I mean, I mean that, that sounds very demeaning because there was some really great work at the time and really funny work and really, really polished and great work. I, I don't mean to dismiss it, but I think the difference was that it was just for the goal of, you know, going to these things, getting the laugh and not really investing in moving audiences in in discussing things, which I think was more common 20 years before that. And I think that was sort of a common thing that was important to us of like, why are we doing this? What what journey do we want to go on with the audience beyond just us making them laugh? Because stand-up can do that, sketch can do that, lots of things can do that. But what's unique about improv is that in many ways you're discovering this with the audience and how can we share that experience and, and move them rather than just us being on stage making the ones of them laugh. And I think that's what one of some of the early things we connected on. Do you think your philosophy has changed much now as a teacher? Or do you think it's pretty much stayed the same? Oh, all sorts of my philosophies have changed. But that thing I just said, I still believe. I, um, I think I've grown upon it. And that, you know, I think our relationship with the audience changes all the time. And mine has always been on the side of uh, respecting and wanting to go on the journey with the audience. Um, but I think definitely your relationship with the audience changes as you teach over the years. Um, but ultimately, yeah, I think I'm still on the same ballpark of all of this. The reason we do this is because we want to discover something together and share something. I think sharing is a huge part of improv. And if you decided to come to our theater tonight, then we want to share it with you and we want to learn from you. Because if we're just sitting in a vacuum doing this, it's no fun. And just going over the same ideas over and over again, we want your ideas to make this new and fresh. And I mean, that's why we take suggestions in the first place. So in terms of teaching, definitely the perception of improv in the country and certainly in Phoenix has changed in the public over the last 10 years. But there's still a lot of people who come in classes who just want to be a lone star uh, and be the one who jumps out and makes people laugh. And I don't want to say that their dream is bad because that's a fine dream. But And I don't want to tell them to go away, although sometimes I will also tell them other places they can go to do that. But I think it's important to say you can do that, but you can also share with the audience and share with your ensemble and support your ensemble, and that's going to be rewarding too. Or at least I encourage students to try that, to say, why don't we experiment with just supporting the ensemble and seeing where it's at? And if it ultimately really isn't appealing to you, that's fine. It's not that I'm right and you're wrong about your relationship with the audience but I just encourage them to give that part a try when you guys then um, sat down and decided you know what we need to we need to come together work together and create this when you just sat down with everybody and started to you know fill in what the the, um, the curriculum was going to look like was that something you guys were pretty methodical about or was that like Hey, let's have a conversation, scratch some things out, and see. Oh, what no, happens. we were pretty methodical. I mean, we did a meeting of just writing some ideas out, so it's baseline, but we were pretty methodical about it. We actually worked with the Arizona State University's Department of Education um, because we thought we know what skills we want to teach, but probably these professional educators have ideas on how to build a curriculum that we. Did yeah. you no, – no, I'm sorry. No, I think that um, – did you guys have contacts there or was that something – like how – because I, I want you to go into absolutely why because I think that's 
amazing and fascinating, but was that someone was like, oh, FYI, I'm an educator and I have a contact there, or is that like, we really want to make this an education? Uh, a little bit of both, is that we, we sat down and we sort of, I, I think one great thing about the people I work with is that we are pretty smart, but we're always willing to go, we might be smart at improv, but that doesn't necessarily mean we're good at whatever this new venture is we're going into. And so let's maybe ask somebody who's a professional at that thing. And we did. We have a lot of teachers in our community who had access to the high school level. And they said, I can probably get access to the university level, too. And then we had one friend who uh, had text. So, yeah, we, we sought it out a little bit. And so he's able to get a hold of it, of how to put together curriculum. And it was really, it made sense. But it's stuff that we never would have thought about. Um, that it, it's not just putting together a list of skills in order, which is what Galapagos was doing. It's just like, here's some skills, here's an order that makes sense. I think that's fine. But there has to be, you know, different parts of the, of the education that were together. And there has to be different parts of how you teach it. And I, I like, I hate that it rhymes. I hate that it rhymes because it, it seems to diminish so much that it rhymes. But the one that Arizona State University said they have to, that every skill you teach, people have to be able to create that skill, they have to be able to uh, relate that skill, and have to evaluate that skill. Uh, meaning every, any uh, exercise you do in class, it's like, you have to make sure they understand the actual exercise. You know, if you're pointing and saying yes, you have to know how to do that. But also learn what is the point of this? How does this make my scene work better? And also when the, I'm not yelling at you from the side, how can you continue to do this and self-evaluate if you're actually improving that skill through doing it? And I was like, that's really important that all three of those need to be part of any lesson you teach. With that, with that knowledge then, you guys had to sit down and literally pick apart every exercise that was going to be presented in the curriculum? No, I just think we had to keep that in mind is that, well, in, in our process, and I, I wrote a little thing about this a while ago, but our, our process was because you have different teachers. And I think is an important thing to learn, too, is if you have different teachers, you want to have, if one person's teaching level one and another person's teaching level one, you want to make sure they're teaching the same skills. Because when people get to level two, maybe one group did clams are great and one group did hotspot, but they both got the same skill set and they're both ready for level two. And they both, even if they don't know the same names of the exercise, especially since every exercise has 15 names, uh, if a level two instructor expects they know that, then they can continue growing their education. And so we didn't want to break down every single exercise, but we broke down, what is the skill we want to do here? What is this? What is this? And we made a graph and there's several pages of the graph and everything. But for each skill, you can, as an individual instructor, you're going to have your own style and you're going to have the exercise that maybe helps you do it best but just keep those things in mind make sure that the students understand how it relates to class and make you know and have a conversation with them because it's not like you have to read this is how it does you ask them what connections are you making and you can offer your insight but i think it's ultimately up to them you can give them the exercise you can point them in the right direction but if they don't recognize that connection between them and their skills just saying it out loud isn't going to make them bring that to their scene work necessarily. Um, I want to jump a bit around to ask you some questions, and then we'll come, and then we'll loop back around. Nowadays, 
when you do have, so do your teachers nowadays have a form that they will fill out on each student that, yes, they've mastered the skill of agreement, they've mastered yes and, that way when they take a look at it, they can say overall, yes, you know, Billy can go to level two. Not, yeah, not officially, but I mean, every once in a while we get together and, you know, just sort of refresh ourselves on our own, you know, check, keep ourselves in check. But at the end of the class, we kind of look things. Yeah, it's good to check in, and it's also good to check in with the next level teacher. Um, and it's good to also check in. I've had cases where I have a student who is having trouble with a certain concept, and I will go and I'll talk. If I'm teaching level four, for example, I'll talk to the level three and the level two and the level one teacher and go, hey, you've worked with a student. Um, how do you reach them? You know, what I, I notice they have the difficulty with this one concept or this one. Even if it's not an improv concept, maybe they're not good at listening to instructions or something like that. And I think it's good to have that base of teachers when you have, you know, a few teachers to check in. And they've often had good advice. Uh, on the other hand, I think one of the challenges we're hitting now as um, uh, growing a little bit, you know, to a, from a smaller to a more mid-sized theater is in the old days, you have one class at a time or two. And it was really easy to have more complete discussions. But... Especially now, if there's a level two going on, registration is going to open for level three before level two is done. So we know the schedule and stuff like that. And how do you adjust to say at the end of level two, like, hey, I really don't think the student's ready, but they've already registered, right? And we don't have the answers to that yet. Um, is we're, we're just doing our best of just trying to stay in communication. But I think I'd be open to hearing how other theaters handle that sort of thing when you're students are going through this system and there's so many systems, how do you avoid somebody losing, falling, through the tra- falling through the cracks like that, you know? Right, especially if the teachers really do feel that uh, they're struggling with core concepts and, and might need to repeat a class. If that, you know, and, and so is that, um, is that part of also, uh, you know, some, some schools and every... To each their own. I don't. I don't know if one way is better than the other. I don't have enough evidence either way. But some schools aren't. Are no matter what you're going through, right? And some schools are like, no, we're gonna. We have standards, and we're gonna take a peek at every student. What? Um, so, are you guys holding people back? If what's your policy? I guess there's the word policy. Woo. <laughs> we we want as much as possible that a lot of times ensembles with their moving forward they find comfort in the people they're with at the same time we also want to tell them that's not always going to be the case but we definitely want to help the students as much as possible and to give them the extra tools they need to go forward but ultimately yeah if the student is in a level and they're they need to keep it back um we'll check in with them early see what we can do maybe supplement it but if we we never like make it like you're bad um we always work with them but like we've held students back a few times here and there um if they're not ready to go on and you know financially we're like don't worry about it we'll we'll fix that and we we don't want to we're not just here to get money for him and stuff like that and we'll work with your schedule if you're ready to take a class but uh, sometimes yeah it's just and sometimes we say like maybe take it with a different teacher maybe a different teacher's teaching style is going to connect better with your way of learning uh, because there's different ways of learning, you know, and we we have to be aware of that. 
I mean, obviously, and there's there's a million ways you can measure learning. You know, um, I, I'm definitely aware that there's visual learners and oral learners and like kinesthetic learners. There's also people who are very I know this is not medically the right term anymore, but for lack of a better word, there's very right brain thinkers, they're very left brain thinkers. And I'm a left brain thinker who gives very right brain notes. But I you know if I recognize a left brain thinker, I'm like, I know what's going on with you and I can adapt it. And I'll even sometimes in class I'll I will even say like, hey, I'm gonna give the same note twice, and if one makes no sense to you, that's okay. And I'll give a very right brain version of the note and a very left brain version of the note. And there's always one person who's like, oh, now, yes, okay, I, I hear what you're saying now. So, You all sort of had to step up and fill the role of teaching. As you've grown, have you developed a train-the-trainer program? How does one become a – so how are you guys training teachers to now teach at your theater? We definitely – if somebody ex- expresses an interest in teaching, the first part is to make sure that – like, their teaching skills, you know, can grow over time, but we just want to make sure, are you on the same page with us philosophically with what our theater's at? Uh, if you're not, you know, that's okay too, but maybe you shouldn't be teaching our level one, you know. Um, so we just talk to them about what their thoughts on improv are, and we want them to have opinions that challenge ours and are different, but, you know, at the core, um, we want to make sure they're kind of the same as us. And if it seems like they'd be a good teacher and they'd teach the stuff we believe in, we have them uh, sit in with the class for a while. We don't usually have to start with level one uh, because the students are new as well and then work up through some, uh, what, what's the word for it? The uh, assistant teaching? Right, TA. The, yeah, the teacher yeah. assistant. Um, yep. A little bit of side coaching during the class, but also after class, the regular teacher will talk with them for a while and they'll sit in and watch some other classes and then we'll take them up to a class where they're they're teaching fully, but there will be another instructor just once. We don't keep doing this for months and months, but we'll have one round of classes where we have a teacher watch them and give notes after each class. And then if we go, yeah, you, you got what's going on, they start teaching. And, and when they're in the, I mean, I guess for all teachers actually, because like you said, sometimes um, you'll get a student and you're kind of stuck. Do they, is there an outlet like, hey, guys, I need a faculty meeting because I'm really struggling with da-da-da-da-da, or do you, have a, do you have a formal communication program for that, or is that just like you know you can reach out to any teacher at any time to discuss? Closer to the latter. Uh, you can reach out to any time. We're all around the theater all the time. But the, clo- the closest thing we have to a formal thing is um, pretty much all our teachers are going to be at our board meetings because, you know, we're checking in with them. So if any teacher wants to talk about something that's not immediate, they can go, hey, can I just add this to the agenda to talk about so-and-so student? And we can take that off the record um, if need be. But we're all going to be at the same time and place then. So definitely people feel free to – I just did it a couple days ago. I went and talked with a couple teachers just because we happened to be at the theater at the same time. But if there's anything else, we can definitely just throw it on the agenda and say, hey, can we talk about this on Sunday when we meet? Um, are you using any materials in class, or are you just mostly verbal, get up, do the exercise? Tons of materials. Not, not, uh, not in class, though. Um, a little bit. A lot of it's talking in class. I Now, this is different from the different teachers in our theater. Some are more discussion-based, and some are more always on stage-based. But in both cases, we definitely give the materials before and after class. And say, hey, like I'm teaching forms right now, 
So with one except with one week where there's no real prep work, uh, every other week I say, hey, during the week, first of all, uh, watch these things and read read these articles, and then I'll do something like if we're doing deconstruction or Armando. I will say, to get them used to thematics and commentaries, I will say, hey, just take a television show you watch regularly and choose a character and write down the thematics on that character, write down the commentaries on that character, write down any tangents that happen in this scene, uh, and then bring them in and we'll talk about it at the top of class. And so that way you're using your own example to kind of separate those skills. And then as somebody comes in and chooses a character from a TV show, we'll talk about that character and... How would we thematically do that? How would we do commentary on the things they did in this specific episode? Uh, if not the specific scenes, the ideas that we can pull out of it. And so, yeah, I think a lot of out-of-class work keeps people active to, to come back. And telling them to watch classes, too. Like, always encourage them to watch class. I mean, watch shows. Uh, I, I'm a big fan of asking people at the top, like, what did you see this week? And... Not just what did you see, but how does that relate to what we're doing in class right now? Either last week or overall in this class, did you have an, a specific eye for that? And they're like, yeah. And sometimes they'll go, yeah, and it, it seems contrary to what we're talking about, which is great because that opens up conversation and that allows them to critically think about these things instead of just writing down notes and memorizing things. You know, Why did that work if it seems contrary uh, to what we've been talking about? Is it contrary to what we've been talking about? Uh, I think those conversations are hugely valuable. And even sometimes we'll be talking about it and somebody will say, well, I didn't see an improv show, but I went to see a baseball game and I saw something related. And I was like, go on. <laughs> and, and, or a ballet or a wedding or anything. It's surprising sometimes how, what people go like, I really saw this skill in this non-improv setting. And we'll talk about that too. I think that's useful because improv is about relating to life in the first place. So. I know that, uh, you know, a lot of communities can run into this. It's like, hey, go see shows. Oh, that's right. We're the only ones who put on a show, and that's only once a week, and it's only one kind of form. Um, how were you guys <laughs> dealing with that uh, in the early days? In the early days, uh, not that much. But we, what we did do is, when we, yeah, when there was just a couple of shows, uh, we told them to come to our show. Of course, they were free. But what we encouraged them to do is, since there wasn't any other improv shows, we still encouraged them to see movies, plays, anything. And there's going to be relations in that. There's character work in those things. There's status. There's environment. There's other things. So, and definitely we encourage them to see other live stuff in town. If it's comedy or bands or whatever, because there's value in any kind of performance art or any kind of visual art that you can learn from an artist from and relate to them because those people are just expressing themselves in a, a different way than we are. So the way they choose to express themselves, if they're doing ballet or if they're doing deconstruction, there's still a lot of overlap in how they relate to their art. So yeah, it's great when they can see other things that are closer to what they're doing, but Whatever they can see, I think is helpful. And these days, you tape all your shows at Torch, right? All the shows are, are captured on video? Yep. Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, like my video editor's opening because this is the weekend we have 32 straight hours of shows. So we put our camera and our video editor through a lot of work this weekend. But. And that's available these days for anybody to watch, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 And we definitely, 
I'll talk about that really quickly if I'm like, yeah. like I think video is valuable not so much for entertainment purposes. I mean, if you want to, that's great. But it doesn't translate that much. I think as a coach, to be able to watch a show again, it's the same thing an NFL coach has access to. To really look, like, let's watch that scene again because I can give you a, a note while you're doing the scene or even after the show. But if we're watching it together and, you know, you can see, like, look at your body language there. You know, they can see themselves from a third person. I think it's really valuable to have that sort of note stuff. What, um, at the end of classes, are students getting, are they filling out evaluations on the classes and the teachers, or is that combined as one? How are you guys uh, monitoring monitoring your own um, growth as a teacher? Well, in terms of uh, feedback, I, if I understand your question, feedback of the students about us, not our feedback to the students. Right, right? correct, That's correct. Um, so we, we have a couple of steps. First of all, and I'll, I'll merge the subjects a little bit, um, because I want to talk about the feedback to the students a little bit because they relate. You know, we try to give constant feedback to the students, but definitely halfway through the class, um, you know, somewhere in the middle, we have a, a bigger feedback session. There's some private notes, some public notes. Um, I'm personally a big fan of something I learned from Craig Kukowski, and I thought it was fantastic when I took his class at I.O., is each student, they come into the center, and everyone can constructively you know there's ways to organize it's like what do we enjoy when we're playing with them what do we need to see more of but that leads nicely into as a teacher in the middle of the class you can put yourself out there to the students once they've gone through that process with each other and go all right what about me what am i doing that's helpful to you so far in class what am i doing because you know that's i think it's useful to have towards the beginning in the middle of class because then you can put it into action for the second half of class what is not working for me as a te- you as me or teacher? That's the worst grammar ever. <laughs> um, but people, people are always like, "Oh, everything's great," but they will definitely give feedback and they will, you know, tell you what's working, what's not working for them. So we can do that like in the middle of class, and then at the end of class, we have a little check-in. But we have a written uh, evaluation which is anonymous, and it it has one section on. How was this class? You know, how was the material and all that stuff? And then the other half is on the instructor. How did they present the information? Did they give you enough personal attention? Um, and we've been adding more stuff lately of, was this a safe environment? Uh, did you feel if there's anything, you know, harassing or anything like that, that you had the agency to speak up for yourself or that the instructor would have your back or things like that because there's important things we're keeping track of now too. Right, right. Uh, have you ever had an evaluation come back and you were like, wow, I had no idea that's how pe- I was being perceived? Yeah, but it, never overall. But okay. like, there would be like one question sometimes where I'd, um, I can't think of a specific example, but where one person really did not like one thing. And that's a totally valid and I learned from that. But I was like, oh, I had no idea that that was not being received that well. And it's um, I, I totally respect the anonymity, but I would love to sometimes ask, like, not to conf- con- conflict or say they're wrong, but like, like, why? What's going on there? What was? What, how could I make that better? You know? Yeah, but, especially if it's pretty specific, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. But I think, by and large, I think you 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 get the same negative notes that you know about yourself. 
Um, I give way too many examples and metaphors in class, and people are like, yeah, we get it. This is like that movie. Let's go back to class. It's like, I do that. Um, I've been known to talk rapidly, and sometimes people need me to slow down a little bit. So those are notes that I get, and I'm always working on them, but I know that I will get those notes again. Um, and then, you know, most notes, uh, as much as we encourage really in-depth stuff, a lot of times we'll just get notes like, this was great. So... Are you, what kind of classroom management skills do you employ? And, and, and are those taught to your teachers, or did you just find those to just be that most people just have sort of these innate skills because they themselves have gone through the similar program? This is, this is one of the few places where the torch is like the rest of Arizona in that we're pretty uh, laissez-faire. Um, we, each teacher has their own teaching style, and, you know, we, we, we do – Check-ins, we will have teachers sit in other classes and offer insight and stuff like that. But by and large, um, different teachers have different teaching styles and different structures. Um, As long as some some core ideas, both improv ideas and education ideas are covered, we're we're pretty hands-off on how they teach it because I think uh, my friend Sam teaches in a very different style than I do. But he's very effective at it, and the students get great stuff out of it. Um, I, if I tried to emulate his teaching style, it wouldn't be good. If he tried to te- emulate my teaching style, it wouldn't be good. It'd probably be okay. Um, but, um, but yeah, let the teachers teach the way they teach as long as, as people are learning and as long as it's safe, you know? So do you have any, um, classroom management, um, tr- tips, tricks that you really like that you've seen work, you know, these are adult learners. Mm-hmm. They're not children, right? I mean, I, it, Unless you're teaching children, that's a different sure. discussion. But for the most part, I, you know, I'm focusing on the adult learners. Um, so there's, you know, there's ways to approach versus, you know, okay, everyone raise your hand. Like, yeah. obviously. Uh, well, definitely, yeah, they're grown-ups and, and treat them like grown-ups. And even when we have a, you know, a, a, we have occasionally like a 16 or 17-year-old treat them like grown-ups too because they sign up for a grown-up class, you know. Um, in terms of you talking about this, like how you handle the dialogue and stuff like that. Yeah. Do you have anything that you really like to do that you find that works? So, you know, I know, um, I was actually just talking to Josh Nichols and he's like, he's he likes to use the word, okay, mm-hmm. let's focus a lot when, when a lot of rambling and jibber jabberings happen between scenes, you know, instead of yelling, shut up. Cause we all know that's not going right. to work. <laughs> I think right. in terms of that, um, and this is, yeah, again, my, my flavor. I don't have any specific words or anything like that. I've seen Josh do that, and it's very effective, and I love uh, watching Josh teach. Um, but, um, pardon me, for me, what I do is, for every scene, or almost every scene, you know, there's exceptions here and there, but if we're doing a warm-up, I say, how did that feel for you? And I, you know, I schedule a lot of time for this where I go, how did that feel for you? So that gives them, I want to have them feel that there's as many chances for them to have their voice as necessary. So that's one of them. How do you feel at the end of that, that exercise? And sometimes people go, I didn't understand that, or sometimes they say that was challenging, and go, why? What was going on there? So that they feel heard about that part. And at the end of scenes, I will ask the performers, how did that scene feel for you? What was effective with that? And then I ask the audience, you know, the rest of the class, what did you see? When did and I'll ask, I'll ask pointed questions like at the beginning of that scene they seemed to be struggling and then there was a certain point where it really started connecting. When was that for you? 
and let them do that. And I think by giving them those voices that there's less of a need for them to feel that they need to interrupt and that they need to do these other things at inopportune times because they know there's going to be another chance for them to have a voice. And, and I think there's very little need to bring, bring things back on track usually, except maybe right after a break, um, because there's such regular intervals of them being able to voice. And at the end of every class, uh, I brought a little from Lord of the Rings, not Lord of the Rings, Lord of the Flies, where very different books, uh, very different books, um, where, you know, I encourage conversations throughout most of the class, but at the end, everybody has the conch, as it were. Everyone in class gets, you know, as much time as they need, which is usually about a minute, to just, what was your reaction to today's class? This is your voice. This is your voice to say good or bad without interruption. Like, you will have the ability to talk without interruption. And they'll just talk about their takeaways in class, what was challenging for them, and then they'll pass along. And I think by giving everyone a voice at many opportunities as possible, they feel heard. They're learning better because if they have questions, they can be addressed pretty quickly. Uh, and that also goes the other way, that the people who are shy and don't normally speak up are given more space where they feel that the space is reserved specifically for just talk for you to talk so you don't have to feel that you're interrupting what we talk about next will then lead into talking about some scenarios because you brought up how now your forms are talking about did you feel safe and that's you know the concept of being safe on stage um it's really coming to the forefront so what in the classroom do you do to make sure that the student is um feel safe and then if something uh, on stage is happening that, uh, you know, is racist or misogynistic, sexist, what are your policies in place, if any, and or how are you handling them as a teacher? So, yeah, our policies are actually in the process of changing right now, this last year. And um, we're towards the end of the change process, but not towards the end of the growth process. Um I, I'll talk about what we were a year ago versus now. A year ago, we just were very blanket statements with when you're talking to teachers. It's like, be on the lookout for that stuff, right? But I think the two things that we were blind to a year ago, and I think a lot of theaters were too, and that we're probably still a little blind to is, A, if people are uncomfortable, there was kind of an assumption from the teacher. If we're improv teachers... And we're bold, brash people usually. We're accustomed to, if something is bothering us, we'll speak up. And we just sort of assume everyone's the same way. But they're not. And Susan Messing had a great video about you know, her change of heart on that same very idea. So we have to be much more aware that some people might be uncomfortable and aren't able to speak for themselves. And we need to be more on the lookout for that and not assuming that. That said, we need to, we definitely started encouraging people, saying, the scene, especially in the classroom setting, is not more important, you know, or this exercise is not more important than your personal safety. So don't suck it up for the good of this exercise. I had a student just this week, they were um, made to be a, a, a sex worker, 
and they actually just it was in the class and said, "I'm not comfortable with this. I don't want. To, I, I don't feel comfortable being put in this position that I've been put in before." And we were able to go, "Great!" And it also led to a great discussion in the class of, like, the other person felt bad. Uh, and they're a student. They're like they're learning too. And I said, "Well, let's just learn from this from a, a performance standpoint." A, like, make bold choices for yourself. So they were doing, you know, they were heightening of another thing. And I was like, if you feel that was a good way to heighten, and it is a legitimate heightening, make a choice for yourself instead of for your partner. And I think we've been encouraging a lot of make bold choices for yourself. Don't assume that your scene partner is comfortable with a bold choice being made for them. And... That's helped a lot, even in jams, because jams are not people you've worked with before. So the people who are running jams say, hey, everybody, don't assume anybody else wants to be picked up. Don't assume anybody else wants to be made into this this thing, right? Uh, the other side of that with the policy is we know there's going to be reasons to play unsavory characters now and again, and characters who might be sexist or racist. And those are usually weak choices, but... That doesn't mean there's never an opportunity for those characters. And our policy is, like, if you're doing that as a character choice, you're probably okay. If you're doing, if you're using the stage as an excuse to, to really put those ideas out as a person, we're going to have words. If, if that right. makes sense. Right. I mean, because if you, if, if we're do, there's times to do satirical commentating on the ridiculousness of some of these stereotypes and, and whatnot. Um, but that's not necessarily, it, you know, I think it goes back to what class are you in? What are your students? How much do they know each other? Um, so, yeah, I think all of those factors come into play when you see something in, in a classroom take place and then decide this needs to stop and here's the conversation why. And, and kind of coming with the last thing, the more you're used to giving them a voice as students, instead of, like, that you are the only voice, you still have a huge responsibility to be a look on that constantly, but um, but they know they have a voice, too, that they can speak up on those things. I stopped a scene once, and um, everyone kind of knew why I stopped it, but I didn't, I didn't facilitate the conversation. I asked the person who it was against... How are you feeling right now? Mm-hmm. You know, and this student in particular, I'm sure you've encountered this before. What are your thoughts about this whole concept? And we ha- landed up having a great conversation and listening to somebody who has just historically been treated that way mm-hmm. and just really listening to what they had to say. And it was, what, what really struck me was at the end of the day, and the student was absolutely right, it's also really lazy improv. Yeah, no, totally. <laughs> right? Almost every time. And that's, that's the thing we tell them, too, is, like, if nothing else, it's lazy improv. More importantly, you're putting these things. And I think a huge discovery I think a lot of us have been having as teachers and as performers last year, to piggyback off of that, is many teachers um, are in a similar position to myself. Um, like... Uh, I'm the teacher, I'm a straight white dude, Uh, you know, I've always had things pretty much go my way on on important issues, and so if something like that happened to me in a scene, I would have no problem with it, 
it's just another character choice for me. And so if somebody else said, well, that's difficult for me, I can see the instinct five years ago and saying, like, why? Why would that character choice be? Like, I can play any character choice. Why can't you? Because I don't have your life. I don't have that frame of reference or that point of view that a lot of people are treated like that in their real life every day um, by so many people, and they, they've heard it. Oh, they've heard those things said to them over and over again, and it's like, I don't need to hear it here, too. You know, for them, it's not like a weird character choice. It's just like my life, the same demeaning I've been getting all day today here in the scene, too, I don't want to hear, you know? Because chances are they're coming to improv to escape from their everyday life. I, yes, and so, like, yeah, again, if I, if I was made to be... Um, if I was told I was a hooker in a scene, I, I would have no issue with that because that's not part of my reality and that's not part of my per- the things that personally affect me. But, like, there's other things that if like that probably do upset me that I deal with day-to-day and I wouldn't want to... And it would be one thing if once it happened in the scene, but it, that, that doesn't happen to people on stage once, right? A lot of actors are on stage and they just get pigeonholed to the same roles and the same acts and the same subservience over and over and it's like I want to make a choice for this scene I want to have a voice in this scene too and not always be pigeonholed so it's like for them it's a constant and like yeah it's it's as improvisers we're telling each other all the time that we have to look for other points of view that needs to apply to other performers too you know right right so let's then go into some scenarios um first of all what uh what kind of pot what kind of um absentee policy, late policy do you have? Because there are students out there who are just chronically late mm-hmm. and and you know, every now and then I've got a student who's like, heads up, I'm coming from X, Y, or Z and I'm like, oh well, thankfully, you know, we pad the first 15 minutes with warm-up exercises and checking in and I know that about you so great. Uh, uh-huh. Maybe I can even move a class back 15 minutes ask everybody, can we start 15 minutes later? Then there are those who just, I never learned to use time management and it's disruptive and frankly it's disruptive and it's not fair everybody else is also paid so do you guys have any um policies in place so that you can be like guess what you're 15 minutes late that counts as an absence an absence no tardiness is not really an issue so we don't really have a policy i mean not that it never happens but it's it's not something that has happened so often it's disruptive and usually if people are late they let us know ahead um and also, you know, we uh, lock the doors on the theater after a few minutes um, just for safety reasons because there's just, if we're in the back of the theater, that doesn't mean the rest of the theater, we want people walking around in. So students know that students know they generally have to be on time or, you know, sometimes they let us know and then they'll knock or call or something. But, but absenteeism is something that happens when people just don't show up for classes sometimes. So... We definitely have a policy there. Our policy is if they miss two weeks, um, we, we check in with them, uh, make sure that they have at least notes or discussion with their classmates about the things they missed. Uh, and they can, they can go on, usually. You know, we'll have a discussion. But if they miss more than two classes, unless there's really bizarre circumstances, we, we definitely say that they should stay back a class. And... Um, we have people who, some people who just, yeah, are chronic, you know, class after class, and we check in with them of like, hey, 
we want you to get this education too, but also we want your castmates to have a consistent group to work with. You know, how can we help? What can we do to, is this a laziness issue? Is this really a, a that your life is so busy issue? You know, what's going on? So, but yeah, our, our policy in terms of moving forward is if you miss two, we'll have a discussion. You can probably go ahead. And if you miss three, you can't. And usually that includes the, the class performance. Um, but there's some leeway there because sometimes it's like you missed the three classes at the beginning that didn't have as much to do with what your show is. So you can go ahead and do the show, but you should really get those skills and take the class again. A student who is just really resistant to taking the notes, going for the ride, getting the feedback. <laughs> oh. uh, official policy is go home and punch a wall. Um, uh, and we uh, we get usually a slight variation on that, but the same thing. We get we don't get what I would directly call resistance to feedback as much as wanting to continually offer why they made the choice they made and yes. justify it. It's like maybe they'll accept the note, but go okay, but but my choice was still great. Um, that eats up so much class time, right? And. Uh, our policy is if that happens at the beginning, this happens the first time or at the beginning of you know their education, we say what we officially encourage is if you disagree with a note, like talk to us after class and, and ask for some follow-up. Um, talking about it in now is not going to affect anything that's going to happen in the rest of the class. So we'll be available after class if you want this. And we also say just like just take the note. You're allowed to disagree with the note. Nobody's saying that you're forced to do what we said. It's a note, and we we frame our notes as we probably know what we're talking about, and we're smart people. It's up to, but you also have different teachers who may give you different notes. It's up to you to take these notes and interpret them as you will, and form your growth off of them. So if you disagree with this note. That's fine. And I think that also gives them a little agency that they can accept, like, that if they feel they're cool by arguing, we can say, well, you can also be cool by listening and then later disagreeing. But if they continue to do it in class, um, it rarely gets to the point where we ask them not to continue or ask them to move, but we, we tell them, like, look, you're holding the class back. You're going to have less opportunities and stuff like that please stop. We don't have any, but it's rare that we get to the point where we have to remove it from the class. And I think that's usually because when we give them those outside of class opportunities, which they will take advantage of, they will come to us after class and tell us why they disagree with the note. But I think that's not holding them to class. And also, even if we don't ultimately change their mind, they feel heard and we can have a real conversation about it, like an honest conversation about it, instead of like trying to rush them through it so we can get back to class. Does that make sense? It does. It does make sense. Yeah, I um, I think a great thing for pe- people who maybe are, uh, you know, haven't been doing this a long time is like, you know, this is great. We need to have this conversation. Let's table it for now. Mm-hmm. We'll come back to me after class, but for now, let's move forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, another thing, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, that's fine. Go ahead. Uh, another thing we get a variation on that, which I think I think a lot of theaters are getting this. Uh, uh, I think I've heard you mention you that this in your classes once is where now that the word is national international community, people are like, well, so and so teacher said this other thing, and you're like, great, that's also valid. 
but like let's move on with class right now right and it's the same sort of thing of you know you can acknowledge i think it's great to briefly acknowledge like yeah that other teacher said this and i agree with them and there's some valid points in there and point out that valid you know different point of view but contain that and go if you want to talk more about that after class right, right? versus letting them just because yeah i it's not that I, I actually genuinely do like hearing other teachers' point of view on things, right? But there's a time and a place for that, you know? Yeah, I think that's just in a very, that's just a very overarching theme is that they want to be heard. Uh, chances are, that's why they're making their choices in the scenes that they're making is because they want to be heard. So. Right. They're, every improv student comes in wanting something out of improv and it's different because a lot of people know what improv is and a lot of students don't know what improv is sometimes it's just my you know they look like something fun because they saw it on a tv show and sometimes they want to be better public speakers and all of that but ultimately beyond being a student they're a person who's there in an environment that at first is foreign to them uh and maybe a little bit scary but, that, but they have views on what's happening, and if they feel alienated from that, that's not going to help them be better performers or come back or better students. If they feel right from the first day that they're jumping into this crazy new thing, but they're allowed to have emotional reactions to it and have feedback on it and have it be heard, it's going to be a safer place, and they're going to want to continue growing in it, you know? I think that's important. If someone was thinking about becoming a teacher, what kind of advice would you be giving them? Oh, boy, I don't know. Um, well, listen to your students. Um, but I think more than that, have a point of view. Um, and on a more logistical thing, uh, put some planning into your class. Um, that's, that's the easier one. So it's like, 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 like plan your class out. Right? Don't show up 10 minutes before class and go, what are we talking about? Even if you have a curriculum, don't show up 10 minutes before and then glance at it. Put some thought into it during the week. Who are these students? How are they going to react to these values? And what, how can I shape it? And all the time when I'm in week three, I'm a little part of my brain's going, oh, I'm going to have to shape week four based off of this. But, yeah, more importantly, I think just if you're getting into teaching, it's probably because... You love what you've learned before, and there's something you feel hasn't been said yet. So if you're teaching just because you want the status of teaching, don't teach. If you're teaching because you think there's a voice that hasn't been heard yet, please teach. Um, I love there was a great commentary by Pat Oswalt talking about the whole shakeup on The Tonight Show a few years ago, the second one with Jay Leno and, and Conan O'Brien, where he said... David Letterman loved The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. He loved it. And the reason he wanted that show was because he loved it so much that there's things he wanted to do and make it grow. And ultimately, he found that voice in The Late Show. And he says, and Conan O'Brien loved David Letterman's show. And then he wanted it because he wanted to add his own voice to it. So I think that's what we need to do as teachers. This art form, and it's current incarnation, you know, not talking about like necessarily Italian commedia of the 1600s, but, you know, from 1952 on, it's a young art form 
and we need new voices, right? Dell was huge. Dell was Einstein, but we, you know, we have scientists after Einstein who are continuing to grow the form. I hope one of my students has a point of view that I don't have that starts teaching it, right? I rambled again. But I, but I think the takeaways really are super, the super important takeaways are do it because you love what you're doing and you want to share that passion, um, not because it makes your ego feel better. So, yeah. yeah. Right. It's, the same, it's the same skill. I think getting a teacher is the same skill on a, on a grander scheme as we all have that question in scenes, should I enter this scene or should I not enter this scene? And the question is, well, do I want to enter the scene because it seems fun and I want to be a part of it? Or because I can contribute something to the scene? And it's like, never enter a scene because it's fun and you want to be a part of it because then you're changing what it is and you're taking away what's fun of it. Enter a scene because you can contribute something to it. And I think the same with teaching. Don't teach because uh, it would be cool to be a teacher because then you're just, so what? Teach because you want something. You talk to Josh Nichols, right? That dude loves teaching, loves improv, and he has awesome points of view that I had not heard before I met Josh Nichols. I love his idea, I don't know if you guys talked about this, I love his idea about like the skill chain of teaching instead of the straight curriculum, right? With uh, his focus, that yeah, they, they do the focus courses, yeah. yes. Yeah, that's awesome, right? Nobody's, I mean, I don't know nobody, that's not being done generally. That's a new point of view, right? I love Brian O'Connell. He's in, he's across the street from me right now. Um, and I love how committed he is. You know, this comes from Miles, but he's put his own spin on position play and stuff. Stuff that I don't think about day to day. I mean, it's part of my work, but it's not something I think about actively. So I'm glad that Brian is there to go, man, this is really important. Uh, and... My students can go to him and get a different point of view. I'm a huge fan when I teach any workshop of just the real hardcore emotional investment in your character and, you know, the the why are you saying this and why should I care and, and why are you talking to this person and getting to the truth of saying things because you really believe them. It's not 100% unique, but it's something that, you know, my specific flavor of it's maybe different than other people's. And that's that's something I care about so much that I want to take and show other people that this is a way you can do improv, you know? Yeah, yeah. Where can people find you if they want to reach out? Uh, I'm on the, on the uh, let's see, I'm on Facebook, finally. <laughs> um, you can, I'm Bill Binder. I'm at the Improv Network, both on the site and on the group page. You can find me there. I'm on Twitter at WHBinder. And uh, I'm bouncing around festivals here and there. Awesome. So Thank you so much. I love this. This was a uh, this was a great time. It's always a great time. So appreciate it. Yeah. 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 Thank you. We'll talk soon. Yeah, sounds good. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.